What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and much more. Join us. Arisha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sick Individuals and Sick Populations, an IAPH podcast. Today we'll be discussing the COVID-19 vaccine and at this stage in the pandemic, The rollout of the vaccine is absolutely critical if we seek to return to any semblance of normalcy in the foreseeable future. Thanks to countless largely unnamed scientists, we are fortunate to have a number of vaccine options available, such as the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, or we'll soon may have some more candidates like the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccines. Our assignment enthusiasm is tempered not only by the slow distribution to date, but also inequitable distribution of the vaccine. I think also people are just fatigued by the, the pandemic. So today we're very delighted to be joined by Dr. Mati Hashlewayo Davis. And she is an infectious disease specialist at Washington University and the Veterans Administration Healthcare System in St. Louis. And in addition to your many, many different roles and providing your expert opinion in various news outlets all over the world, like BBC News and CNN, You've been an outstanding, amazing advocate for your patients and your community. And so we're very happy that you made time to join us today. So thank you and welcome. Thanks so much for having me here today. It's such an honor and such an important platform to talk about what I think is a really critical issue right now. Absolutely. And again, we're, we're really fortunate to have you because you're someone who understands population health and all its implications, as well as having that direct patient care perspective too. So we'll just start things off. And one of the first questions on the minds of many people around the globe is, do you trust the vaccine? And if you do, why do you trust it? You know, you're the first person that I think that has actually asked me outright if I trust the vaccine, because most (laughs) people assume because I'm a physician, I do. And so I was, I'm really happy to hear you ask that question um, because I did not just trust the vaccine outright because I'm a physician or a scientist or a public health expert. That that was not the way this worked for me. Like many people in black and brown communities in this country, um, there are, um, there's a long documented history of atrocities and abuse, quite frankly, that have happened within our communities that have led Mm -hmm. to mistrust. It's something that I speak about a lot. A lot of the times when I do speak within um, academic settings, it's it's honestly to also provide the history that's there so that people can understand where mistrust comes from, where conspiracy theories come from. So although I trusted the science outright, it was important for me to delve into the data and how rigorously this was done Mm -hmm. so that as a trusted messenger, I would have data to back up what I was saying. So I think for that reason, um, I I really sort of dove into what was happening around this. And so I do trust the vaccine. And I say that for a couple of reasons. The first is that I think understandably from a layman's perspective, there isn't this understanding of the fact that this vaccine most parts of this vaccine have actually been in development way before the pandemic. A lot of people think of coronavirus as a singular entity that just came on the scene in late 2019, but SARS-CoV-2 is only one part of a much larger coronavirus family that we've known about for years. And Mm -hmm. we've done research even here at Washington University for years. so, so a lot of the preparation into how to approach it preceded the pandemic, including also the mRNA technology that's being used for the vaccine um, that I always like to credit Dr. Kazmika Corbett, an African-American woman who led 
the development of the vaccine um, co-led it at the NIH. And again, that technology did not start being in development at the onset of the pandemic. And I like to remind people that this is the first time in our history where every government, every country had to come yeah. to a standstill. All resources thrown into the same thing, from pharmaceutical companies to research labs. Um, and, and like I said, entire government systems, we have over 200 active clinical trials for these vaccines. So it's an absolute triumph of science, but it's very understandable why we were able to get through phase, uh, phase three clinical trials with the speed that we have given that kind of history. So I trust it for that reason, but moreover, I trust it because there are diverse and by diverse, I wanna be specific, black and brown people who sit on the Pfizer leadership, the Moderna leadership, and most importantly, the external review boards through which mm. any, any phase three clinical trial has to go through um, for the type of approval that the FDA brings. And I know that because I sit on the board of directors for the Infectious Diseases Societies of America's minority interest group that houses some of the leading black and brown um, infectious diseases specialists in our country. And many of them sit on either the Pfizer, the Moderna, or those external review boards have access to uh, CDC uh, boards um, that, that were instrumental in this. Listen, it wasn't perfect. We still didn't get the kind of representation in this trial in black and brown communities as we should. That has never happened in our history because of that history of mistrust. But I was impressed to see um, groups like Moderna even slow down their recruitment when they realized their numbers were overwhelmingly um, insufficient. Um, mm -hmm. And they were able to get them to 10%, which is not nearly where we need to be, but much better where we were when they started. So I trust the vaccine. Those are some of the reasons why I trust the vaccine. Thank you. Yeah, that's really smart. You know, I hadn't heard that argument about, you know, the gatekeepers to some extent, right? Our communities of color were in the past for years, we didn't have that right. And it was it was true, yeah. like kind of lab scientists working in, in our communities or in, in Guatemala, right? And, you know, sterilizing women or whatever. So yeah, right. that's, I think an important point that, you know, we, we try to convey to people. And that, um, you know, we, we started talking about, there's so much vaccine hesitancy across the country. I think some of the estimates say that around 50% of Americans um, are reluctant to get the vaccine. We've seen that, right, even within our own healthcare providers, right, uptake of the vaccine. So mm -hmm. um, while we know the science really well and we go into the data, from your experience, um, what do you think works best when you try to communicate some of these ideas to people about the vaccine, the timeline, how it was developed, um, right? Because we don't want to go into like, we did a randomized controlled trial and we followed these people, right? So what, in your experience, when you are talking to community members and patients really kind of hit, hits home and you see kind of the light switch to some extent um, and and people are more, um, who might have been reluctant are, are more kind of trusting uh, what you're saying. What is it that you feel like works best in those settings? That's another great question. You know, the first thing that I would say is if you are going to be um, be given the privilege of being able mm -hmm. to educate um, or talk to people about this topic, you yourself have to do your homework. I don't care if you're Black, um, from the Latinx community, from a Native American community, or from other communities, you still need to do your background into vaccine hesitancy. Going into it without that type of preparation, honestly, I don't think puts you in the sort of mindset to be able to meet people where they're at and really understand um, what is at the root of their mistrust or hesitancy. So for me, I'm a black woman immigrant and anytime people see me, they automatically assume that I'm part of the African-American community. But humbly, I come to this country as an immigrant having grown up in Zimbabwe and I've been here since 2001, but I had to do due diligence. I had to go all the way back to slavery and understand what happened there, where there was no informed consent, where the bodies of black men and women were treated like property, um, and where experiments in the name of medicine were performed against um, um, my community in the name of science. I, have to, I had to do due diligence and, and, and educate myself around the history around Henrietta Lacks, the Tuskegee experiment, 
um, what has happened in, in, in Latinx communities around sterilization, what has happened in Native American communities um, around lack of access and quite frankly, being completely, completely negligent um, care. And once I did that, it helped me to really frame and understand disparities, to understand mistrust, to understand systemic institutional racism that isn't historic, that is very much a part of the now, so that you go into these encounters in the right frame set and humbly understanding that I, no matter what the color of my skin, my gender, um, or my ethnic background, am still a part of the very institutions that the people that I am trying to engage in, in do not trust. If you work for a government entity, an academic institution, a medical entity, you represent the very institution in which these, these patients, these, these, these people who are coming to us intrinsically have an issue with, right? Yeah. So I made it a point um, halfway through the summer last year when I came out of maternity leave, because uh, I also had a pandemic baby as an infectious mm. diseases doctor, which was just swell, <laughs> <laughs> just awesome. <laughs> and um, so I was on maternity leave um, and then came out of it and said to myself, I will dedicate the, at least the last five to 10 minutes of every patient, patient encounter to ask if people had questions around mm. COVID and then now wow. the vaccine. And it was that intentionality right, that put me in the frame set to, to have to see this time and time again to gain experience with it, that really helped me develop mm. um, a mechanism that I'm actually um, using to share with my colleagues at, at the Veterans Hospital around how to approach these things. And, and what I do is I approach four main, um, four, main, four main approaches to this. The first is to ask, and before you even get there, you know, physicians love to think, you know, we're, 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 we're those people and our little white coats. And if you've been in the hospital, we come in in a group and we tower over the bed and it's a top down approach. And it's just so obnoxious, right? Sure. <laughs> and it's, it's, if you really want to connect with people, you need to meet them where they're at. You know, I, for me, I oftentimes don't wear a white coat. Um, I sit at the, at the foot of the bed, I find a chair, I look people in their eyes and I talk to them like a human. And so that first approach is to ask. And with asking, it's not this, we love to lecture in academics too, right? We've, we've done, we, what, we've been in school for what, 30 years, 20 to 30 years? So <laughs> you ain't gonna stop us from talking. We're gonna talk you down. Do you hear me? We're gonna tell you our little facts and, and figures. But in these encounters, it's a simple question, you know? Just wanted to see if you had any thoughts or questions around uh, the, the, the COVID vaccine. Any concerns or any questions you'd like to ask me while you have me? Mm -hmm. Shut up. Stop. Let them speak, right? Um, and then the next approach is if anything comes up around mistrust, especially in regards to the history, you acknowledge and you apologize. Yeah. It takes nothing from you, right? It takes right. nothing from you. I was born in 1982. I wasn't even in this country when some of these trifling things were happening in this country, right? But I am now a part of these institutions. It takes nothing from me to acknowledge, yet you are absolutely right. Terrible things have happened in the name of medicine and science in black and brown communities. And for that, I want to say that I am so sorry. Period. It, you don't have to get crazy with it. Whatever your, your, your personal approach is, acknowledge and apologize. Then you spend the crux of it educating. And you educate someone as if you're talking to, most of us on this call, I'm sure, have had the family members in the family chats, you know, talking about whatever their questions and concerns are. The same way you would talk to a family member or a loved one, using the same language. But something that's come out over the last couple of months in, in the circles that of people who do this, um, for a living is feedback about how we are using scare tactics mm -hmm. to convince people. Yeah. And even when you don't mean to, right? right. Talking about, I take care of these people and you would not, you have no idea how many people are dying in hospital beds on ventilators and multiple of their family. I mean, what, what are you hoping to achieve? Mm. You know what I mean? <laughs> You've got to stop being defensive. And I get it. A lot of frontline people have seen a lot of scary things. We're tired. Mm our patience is thin, but if you're going to commit to this work, then you got to take a deep breath and have the mindset. And so for me, personalizing takes away any opportunity I have from um, those sort of scare tactics that you may, you know, 
purposefully or 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 without knowing it are doing and i talk about why i got the vaccine mm. what got me there um and specifically answer their questions so you know four approaches the, the ask very simply then to acknowledge apologize and educate that's really been my approach and the approach i've given to other people yeah i definitely think that your point about the scare tactics is so important because i even when I, you know, I talk to people and I'm like, do you want to be on a ventilator? You know, like, and, um, you know, we're trained in public health and we know that that is no way to motivate people. You know, we like, you know, the, the, like the cancer warning on the cigarette box, like that doesn't do enough to scare people. Right. And so I think this more empathetic approach, understanding like, what really are your concerns? Yeah. Um, I tell people, you know, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I'm someone's daughter right? Mm -hmm. So there are multiple angles that I relate to this. I relate to the fear around my elderly parents getting sick. You know, when we had a baby, we had no childcare in the pandemic. It took us a long time to decide if we would even let our parents come see the baby. They didn't see her for months. And then yeah. if they would help us with childcare and what we were going to do around that, you know, as a wife, my husband is also a physician in the NICU. And when I was pregnant, you know, um, he was taking care of COVID patients and we had no idea the data then and even now it's still sparse around pregnant mm -hmm. women. So I understand the fear there, right? As a parent, you know, I, I have had to make decisions around whether or not my, my kids go to school, preschool, you know, daycare. And so I may not understand every single thing, but you are a human. Humanize the topic before becoming too academic yeah. and losing people because you've got to understand that again the mistrust is rooted within the academic institution so why would you invoke that in trying to dismantle that type of fear and and mistrust um and and there's a way to use very good facts whilst being personal and at least that's my approach you know sure. um and i will say my approach may not be for everyone you know the, the 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 way that i interact with patients is very distinct to me and i understand that but i can say that as someone who has dedicated like i said all of my patient encounters now there is a covid related portion that i keep I keep as a safe space for the people that i take care of this is at least what i've noticed um where people sort of back off is when you know, you get a little bit too cerebral or you start to attack or or come across as if you're judging uh, or belittling um, where they where they come from with this. Yeah, and for sure, kind of building off of that, right? I think this is really interesting describing your approach. It's right. It's one thing to uh, like understand history and like kind of understand where the mistrust comes from but a completely different thing to kind of contend with it, especially like in individual encounters. And it sounds like you have like a dope system set up where um, you're kind of seeing some uh, good results. Uh, but I guess I wonder like um, in your conversations with uh, kind of other physicians and other people that are on the front line, um, is there any, or is this kind of like understanding or is there like any type of like a, uh, attempt to kind of systemize or systematize um, kind of these approaches to kind of combating mistrust among uh, kind of black populations um, for the very legitimate concerns about this? Or is that more just like it goes uh, from physician or physician to or from person that's dealing with patient to patient and it's up to them to kind of uh, take on these approaches um, under their own will? Absolutely. Uh, you're going to scoop me here. You know, my, my, what I've experienced, this is a very unique experience, right? We haven't had the pandemic like this before, mm -hmm. but what we have had is disparities. And I'll tell you, I struggled during my maternity leave um, to empathize with the reactions around the disproportionate mm -hmm. statistics we were seeing in black and brown communities. I mean, the collective righteous indignation and some sort of the collective sort of shock and awe moment around black and brown people, you know, not only getting, but being hospitalized and dying in much higher rates was quite frankly infuriating for me yeah. at first, you know? And I haven't even been, you know, I, I have to be clear here. I come to this very humbly as a clinician um, and as someone who does have a public health degree that I utilize within my clinical practice, but by no means do I have a longstanding history of, of research and, and academic work in the field of, of disparities. And those people, <laughs> I can, if, if my rage was palpable, I can't even imagine. <laughs> 
because this is not new, right? Let's keep it all the way 100 here. We act like COVID is this sort of like this experience with COVID in black and brown communities is so like new and over. And it's like, nah, right? This joins a long list, heart disease, diabetes, cancers, maternal fetal health. Like I could go on forever, right? Mm -hmm. So it, so this is not about, in some cases, we know there's genetic components that make people more predisposed. But this phenomenon that we're seeing here speaks to so much of the work that all of you do, right? That I humbly cannot even speak to on this call. Um, so I can't even imagine what it was like for them. But just like, and, 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 and just the combination of that being so closely linked to the um, racial inequity movement this summer, right? I had my, my baby in May, two weeks later, George Floyd was murdered right? Murdered in broad daylight, six minutes of film that we were all just privy to see, right? And to me, that created a huge shift in the movement in the, 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 and, and the longevity of it, I believe, and, and the sustainability of it and the action, the action, how actionable it is. For me, George Floyd, COVID, and a lot of the grassroots works that leaders like Stacey Abrams did, I credit towards the Biden-Harris administration making racial equity one of the four cornerstones of their administration. And so when I'm, you know, in coming back to your question, I do not believe we had really done what it took to create these sort of systemic approaches, right? Um, be because I hadn't seen it before with all of this disparities work. I'll be honest with you, I've been told by well-meaning leaders who are really looking out for me and in in, in my future, don't get involved in DNI work in academics. Don't get involved in disparities uh, work in, it doesn't, we don't know how long it has, it, it doesn't have footing <laughs> and you'll only get so far. Straight up, I can, I, I, right now I can tell you that that's yeah. happened. And these are people that have been my, my staunchest advocates who have said this out loud. And so, I think what I've seen now is the fact that we've had this, this momentous shift and this respect for the work that people who have done disparities related uh, work prior to now is being taken, I think more seriously and understanding that we're at like a pivot, a pivot point here, right? Um, and so for me, for example, I would have never come up with an approach or even thought to put pen to paper and make it available throughout my hospital system, which is what I'm currently doing. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing more and more literature in the most respected academic journals now speak to this topic, right. speak to these topics. So yes, I think you're seeing the beginning of that movement, but I honestly, at least in my sphere of clinical um, medicine, have not seen that type of approach invoked in, in, in is formalized of a way as you should. I mean, Dr. Hudson, you know, you know, Washington University has just gone this through this overhaul of its curriculum, um, partly in response to some of these issues and seeing some of the things you've even invited me to come speak to, to me is historic. I mean, it is absolutely, it's, it's something I never saw in my training in medical school and residency or in fellowship, quite frankly. So I want to believe that there is long-term change, but I think when we start talking about what it's going to need um, for that to happen, um, there it has to be more than platitudes. It has to be more than a white coats for black lives moment, a selfie mm -hmm. moment or a hashtag on Twitter. These sort of, this sort of systemic change that you're talking about, Michael, requires funding and policy and intentionality and systems level changes that I have not seen yet. Yeah, definitely. And I wondered like to that point, right? Vaccine hesitancy among black and brown communities or native communities or, or whoever. I wonder if we also can think about this, leveraging this as a paradigm shift in the ways that we talk about other healthcare, right? Like mm -hmm. whether people take insulin, like whether mm -hmm. or not they get cancer treatments or mammogram or a pap smear or the HPV vaccine, right? In what ways have we already failed these communities in communicating about those things that we can take the lessons that we learn from the COVID vaccine, right? And re the we talked about all of the other healthcare, you know, interventions and medications and treatments that they're already not getting because they have, right? hesitancy and in, in those things as well right and, and then Absolutely. Thinking, and then 
you know, uh, which I don't think that, I think to your point, we have talked about inequities and disparities for a long time and studied it. And we've known that communities aren't getting the care that they need for a lot of different reasons, including trust, right? But nobody, everyone's like, trust is just this thing because it's out there because like Tuskegee, right? But nobody's really actually thinking about how to then do we address it? And I think your point is 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 right, right? Like there has been a, a wind change, but um, a sea change, but who knows whether or not that's gonna stay. And then how does that mean? What does that mean for changing? And I think we also fundamentally overlooked some of the, the um, requirements it takes to heal and grow and move the dial, right? We just mm -hmm. had the insurrection on January 6th. And even mm -hmm. then, right? People were saying we can't talk about healing without accountability. We can't talk about, and that's the same in disparities work. Mm -hmm. In each individual city, county, there is a, a, a history, an ugly history of the relationship between black and brown communities, native communities, and these institutions that ask of them and expect of them um, each day. And I challenge those institutions to ask like, ha has there been an accountability moment? Has there been a time where we've actually said these things have happened right here and we acknowledge that and these are the tangible steps? If there hasn't, and if it hasn't been done at a level that other people could say in their, in their jurisdictions, you know what? I remember that X institution or X entity actually addressed this in more than just a Black History Month, Martin Luther King right. event annually. Um, things like that go a long way, funding and policy. And so, you know, I just, you know, got the great honor of being appointed to the um, Board of Health for the city of St. Louis. And they're tired of me because they know at every meeting, I'm be like, so what are we talking about with equity? <laughs> Black and brown people, what are we doing? You know what I mean? And I feel great about it because I didn't ask for it. They came to me knowing right. so well. Uh, like, I should manage sure? it. So yeah, it's a yeah. very freeing thing to be your authentic self and for people. Like I promise you, the first time I was on CNN, I was like, baby, Get the, get the recording, we're gonna get a cute outfit, let's spend some money on some makeup because they're not gonna ask me that. I'm gonna say systemic racism. I'm gonna say blickety blickety black every opportunity I get. <laughs> so it was shocking that I was asked back, right? Um, and I'm so proud of, I'm proud of the role the media has tried to take in this. We, we blame the media so much for being sure. a part of the negativity. Yeah. But say what you wanna say, I feel like media has taken an active role in trying to give platforms um, and to speak about some really difficult topics. I think that, you know, folks like yourselves, even dedicating times on your, on your podcast, I think there has been a shift and, and I'm excited about that moving forward, but there are steps that I think we've overlooked in this being more than a surface level intervention mm -hmm. in the past that I think COVID has really shockingly sort of made us take a look at what's underneath you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and take stock. And so we're, a year, we're coming to the anniversary, right, of a lot of what happened last mm -hmm. year around racial equity. And throughout, throughout this year, we'll be coming to the one year of. And can we look at that and feel proud of the fact that we did more than another moment in time or another mm -hmm. hashtag, right, or another uh, knee-jerk reaction? And my hope is not, but I will say that um, in my experience, we have a long, long way to go. I'm proud of the steps being taken, especially through local government here, the county and the city both have started doing some really innovative things around that. But overall in this country, the, res the vaccine response has been woefully inadequate. First, because we didn't get a, a, a good vaccine product out, but because we didn't have a plan, right? right. We had months to prepare for the plan, yeah. months. Yeah. months, literally months to plan for this. And then December hit and there were so many things that didn't go well, especially understanding that you cannot leave it to states alone without federal level support and leadership because mm -hmm. then the trickle down effect of, of what happens is, 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 um, is failure, right? Um, I know now sitting on the board of health that the city has been operating with their hands tied behind their back because you know there were inequities um, and differences around who was getting vaccine product, when they were getting it, um, and the plan around it. So even though the city had a, what I think was a very thoughtful plan mm. to the public, it's looked like a shambles mm. once mm. again, without understanding what that means for the city when the state 
is operating at a certain level or isn't operating at a certain level. Mm -hmm. And then when the federal government er is, is or is not. Um, and that's where the real long-term change is gonna have to come. Yeah. There's so much to react to. Um, sure, yeah. And I think that, you know, you're absolutely right. It's been maddening as a, an equities researcher, just how novel everything seems to be. And <laughs> um, the difficulty that I'm sure all of us have had in publishing papers in certain outlets. Right. I've been told that your work is not meaningful because you're, why are you focusing on Black Americans? Like you should be doing a comparative analysis or, you know, we know everything that we need to know about Black and Brown people. Um, <laughs> so what is your research agenda really going? I mean, I've had people say that to me too. Um, I mean, the nerve, but the accuracy yeah. of it. And I'm so glad because for you, Dr. Hudson, you're someone I've looked up to since my training because your work is so important. And because as a clinician, I'd never had the kind of training I, that I aspired to in you. But I think it's so important for people to hear what your experience has been like mm -hmm to this point and the sort of feedback you've gotten around this work mm -hmm. that now everyone, like you said, wants to put on a pedestal and come to you, I'm sure, and look to you and everybody wants you on their grants and everybody mm -hmm. wants you to comment <laughs> on their work now, I'm pretty sure. Okay. But prior to this, how maddening it's been and how, like I said, folks like me have been told, don't, do, don't go down that path. You know, yeah. there may not be longevity or success at the end of that path. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I appreciate that. I, I, I'm certainly not an inspirational figure like you are. Um, but I do appreciate the, um, the shout out. And yeah, I just, I want to ask you, especially your role as uh, where you sit as a clinician and mm. having a, a bead on what happens in training and academic medicine. If you had to, and, and this is a little bit different from our world, because we're, we're academic researchers, we're sitting in these institutions, but Oftentimes, we're not directly involved with how physicians are trained or what hospital or healthcare system response might be. If you had to think about just a few things that you think would be really important, like a prescription for equity, if you will, mm. um, what would you say for like training, patient care, healthcare systems, any, any specific bullet points that you may have thought about before? Yeah, I think that... You know, we came off this weekend with some really troubling news coming out of Tulane's healthcare system mm. um, and Dr. Penar's experience, which, you know, yeah. if anyone's listening to this podcast, whenever it comes out, even at whatever time that is, mm -hmm. I would ask you to, 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 to look into that case and to mm -hmm. really read, because no matter where it lands, some of the evidence that are in court documents that I took time on my Valentine's Day weekend with two snotty-nosed <laughs> kids, at home to read about, yeah. um, I think is speaks to the reason why we're at where we're at. The care of black and brown patients is directly linked, directly linked to the training and the equity within the very people entrusted to take care of them within academic institutions. If we do not have um, equity that goes beyond recruitment that goes beyond the superficial definition of inclusion to this point and really speaks to the experience of black and brown people in these institutions, black and brown physicians, um, healthcare workers, uh, researchers, public health experts, our patients are still never going to see that dial moved. There is a tokenism that exists because of the very real systemic and institutional racism that makes it difficult. For too long, I have been one of the only in my medical class, uh, medical school class, in residency, in fellowship, and now as a faculty member. I should not be the one. I should not be one of two or three. The burden that that places upon us, I cannot speak to how, how difficult it makes. It makes it for us to just focus on our training. We become the go-to for all black and brown voices. We become the go-to for all photo ops so that you can put something on your website that looks inclusive. We become, then we are not allowed to use the race card, but our colleagues can use the race card and saying, well, the only reason you were hired is because they needed an affirmative action pick. Um, the sum total, a lot of times in my evaluation was being told, oh yes, you definitely will be a good fit in HIV medicine because you're black and the patients are black. And so the mindset is that our only value in these spaces is our blackness. Let me be clear, representation matters. 
me being a part of this of this institution and being able to treat patients in the way that I do, it matters. But it's not the sum total of who I am. And my experience should not be should not um, be made even more challenging by the sort of micro and macro aggressions that we deal with all the time. There is a problem in academic institutions that starts with tokenism and that also means and, 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 and very basal issues that we've talked about forever. Systemic and institutional misogyny and racism where we know there's clear inequities in pay, in promotion, in mentorship, and more importantly, sponsorship. And that type of sponsorship is what, you know this, Dr. Hudson, makes or breaks your career, right? I have seen science, you know, scientific community in this country prioritize basic science and, and traditional clinical science with funding and policy. In our ac academic institutions, you see a lot of uh, starter funds, uh, a lot of protected time to make sure those academic, those, those academic careers flourish. In the same way, there's a diversity of excellence amongst our halls that comes from everyone, but specifically in black and brown trainees um, um, as well, that also needs to be paid attention to. Are they getting the same mentorship and sponsorship, sponsorship as other people are? Are they being promoted equitably? Are they being paid equitably? Um, our journals need to be looking at this as well. It, just the same way you were talking about, you know, the difficulty in publishing. There's a diversity and excellence in academic institutions that needs to be paid attention to. You know, until that happens, we're going to have a problem and that problem will trickle down into the sort of inequities we see around our patients. It is more than just systems, you know, sort of superficial planning at certain events during the year. It really takes a shift that I'll be honest is probably really difficult and costs a lot of money. But if you wanna do it and if you keep asking us, it's not the town halls that are gonna do it. It's the things that we've been talking about for years and years and years, including in the last year that need to actually happen. Yeah, and it's challenging I think too, because I think we can all speak to you know, when you are the one mm -hmm. woman, Latinx, black, immigrant, mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is, right? That you, um, and your junior, right? Which often is how they, I mean, I'll speak for myself, right? I came in through a diversity hire. I was the most junior person in the department to, to tell full faculty who we vote on that tenure case. You know, we need to diversify our applicant pool applicant pool our curriculum the way that we're approaching things there's just no power there right and so um i think thinking about these like top level shifts um as opposed to one or two three diversity hires um which really just ends up putting the burden on yeah you know because oftentimes we're recruiting with the same lens right yeah. We're yeah. recruiting using the same old school metrics. And then we're saying, see, they're just not out there. Yeah. No, your model for identifying excellence and identifying value is antiquated. Yeah. I have never seen someone who does what I do. And therefore what I'm doing right now doesn't hold value mm. in these spaces, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm not a traditional basic science or clinician. Yeah. And the fact that I don't publish and I don't, you know, do that type of research that that should be the only lens, the right? Metric, you right. have talked about me on this call, Dr. Hudson, as someone who is, is, like you said, really great things about me. And inside, I feel like an imposter because I haven't had that type of validation within academics because the, the metrics that we use to not only bring these people in, the metrics that we use to promote them don't really speak to what I do. So what I do is seen as hobbies, yeah. as external activities, Right. Even though I know very well that they directly benefit the institutions, oh, yeah. my 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 local um, and this region. Right. I see that. Right. right. What I, the feedback I'm given is they don't because the antiquated models for acknowledging mm -hmm. those do not say that someone like me should get protected time, should should not get starter mm -hmm. funds, should not get, you know, the same sort of promotion. We think about it. Let's be very real. People in academics are promoted or given leadership positions based on antiquated models of how much they do certain types of research. We all know what kind of research those are and how much they publish in certain academic journals. So therefore at jump, when you are hiring someone 
in diverse pools of excellence. You're saying, sure, you can come in and you'll be here junior, but trust and believe you're not going to advance past this level because yeah. you don't meet this antiquated model and you're not going to advance, you're not going to be seen in these same circles. And so until our, 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 our academic institutions are ready to really look at that model as a whole and to not only see that the only place for us to advance is through you know, certain places. For me, I, I have happily taken on DNI work even though it wasn't um, the plan in the beginning of my career. And so I value the fact that I could progress through that channel, but that shouldn't be the only channel for black and brown people. Mm -hmm. And if you're not seeing them, it is not because black and brown people are not as excellent. It is because your antiquated models have not moved to understand the diversity of excellence that is out there and what it takes to both hire that and to keep it. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I, where I'm at with it. How are we gonna judge how excellent and how much somebody contributes to this field of these disciplines if they don't publish three papers that literally nobody reads, right? <laughs> like, how, how else do we know? What, what's how? the alternative? <laughs> I tell, how could we ever? Oh my yeah. gosh, I feel like I need to have this podcast with you guys like every week. Every, every yeah. yeah. Mechanism because it's just, it's wild to me. It's literally yeah. wild that this is where is. we're at with it, you know? Yeah, especially for population health scientists, right? But for everybody, but for, mm -hmm. for us who are like, so you're telling me if the work that I do outside of this office is not important, yeah, right. it's impacting, you know, like you would rather, to Mike's point, write three papers that will impact nothing or nobody. That's it. Or, you know, yeah. That's it. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm saying there should be space for all of this. And there should be attention yeah. paid to all of this. Yes. You know what I mean? Um, but if you're not seeing success, in your recruitment and retention, maybe look at your antiquated systems. Your metrics. Maybe yeah. look at how you are bringing in, retaining, and move advancing these folks because that that's probably where it lies. You know. Yeah, definitely. Um, to shift back a little bit, I'm wondering if you can speak. You you talked a bit about this earlier about kind of the work that you've been doing with. Um, the St. Louis Board of Public Health and like thinking mm -hmm. about the vaccine distribution, mm -hmm. you know, for those of us who aren't privy to these conversations, what are you seeing in terms of the plans for vaccine distribution, how it's been working, how it's not been working, um, these issues of who has access, the rollout of it all. Can you give us a yeah. little bit of, explain for those of us who don't know and are frustrated, right? Like why can't we get this to, you know, factory workers and and and, and black and yeah. uber drivers like teachers break yeah. for us and explain absolutely you know, why I, what's happening it's interesting i had to get checked by one of my mentors mm. around august september because if you saw me on on national and international um media outlets i was talking a lot about vaccine hesitancy and i felt like i had good reason to do so and i went and and we were speaking at a, at a meeting that we were at and she said and she said a dr Adamora, who is a phenomenal mm -hmm. phenomenal champion yeah. in infectious diseases but in medicine as a whole and she was the one who who taught me and 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 and, and challenged me and said we don't just have an issue black people and brown people are not a monolith it's not all about vaccine hesitancy you can have vaccine hesitancy and have many people in black, brown and native uh, communities who want the vaccine but won't have access. Mm -hmm. And we have to have the ability to address both at the same time. And so I shifted the way that I spoke about this at that time because I really felt like I had failed um, my communities by not advocating for both simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And so we've talked a lot about vaccine hesitancy. I think what we're talking about now is an access issue that predates COVID. Yeah. And I wrote an op-ed for Newsweek at the beginning of this before the vaccines were in distribution. And I talked a little bit about how you can manufacture trust for the purpose of these trials and for the purpose of a vaccine rollout. Similarly, there's no way we're gonna be able to come with an all-encompassing perfect system for these distribution in a short amount of time. So there has to be a short-term and a long-term approach to this happening at the same time. And in the short-term approach, um, the trust, the mistrust, both of people who probably won't take this vaccine, but of people who want to, even though they still don't trust, trust us, right, um, has to be, in my mind, in partnership with the community partners, leaders, and organizations that have earned the trust of their communities way before 
coronavirus. These are the people who did the work in our communities through the HIV epidemic. These are the people who have done this work uh, throughout the years for heart disease, for diabetes. These are the community groups that are trusted, but also to be innovated about who are trusted messengers in cultures of black and brown communities. I know in our community, family, the elderly, religious entities are huge. So one of the things that I really credit Dr. Fred Eccles at the city um, um, uh, health department is in starting cler a clergy advisory board. And he has been using the leaders from major religious um, groups within our city from all different religious backgrounds to talk about HIV, people living with HIV. And because he did that, was able to then have that system ready to go in place in talking about COVID. And we could, and, and so I believe that those community partnerships, but for too long, they've been asked to do this in isolation. They've been asked to do this without funding and policy. So there needs to be federal funding and policy. And Dr., uh, President Biden has talked about procuring funds for the defense production uh, fund to do this. Um, but it, we need policy and we need these partnerships to come into play. And it really should be having those partnership with these community-based organizations where the, the, the physical locations for these rollouts should be, where mm -hmm. we should be listening to them around communication, effective education and communication, because they've had to do this. Um, I think that's central to success here. We also need data, data transparency because as my good friend, Dr. Corey Bradley says, uh, data is justice. Mm -hmm. And so we need data around what's happening in black and brown communities around COVID and the vaccine um, to, to, to drive our policy. Um, but those are a few of the places that I think um, we, need to be, we need to be acting and that I'm really happy to see both the county and the city responsive to. But transparency around that rollout with effective yep. communication happens because people are not seeing what the difficulty with sign up has been and why we haven't gotten to them yet. And if we're not telling them what some of the challenges are and reassuring mm -hmm. them with the plans that we have, mm -hmm. then we lose them right at the outset. Yeah. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about many different things, many much different uh, perspectives here to, to react to. And um, there's been a lot, you know, on our minds in general, like you mentioned, the uh, killing of George Floyd last year that we had to react to and live through um, the, the struggle, constant struggle was happening in academic medicine and training and all that. And so, um, you know, we just wanted to kind of end with like a thinking about a positive note and mm. kind of curious about, you know, what, what gives you hope right now and what, uh, you know, what, what keeps you going, what, what keeps you motivated? What gives me hope is conversations like this. Um, I don't know if our paths would have crossed otherwise, Dr. Hudson, if we hadn't had this pandemic and if we hadn't dug our heels into this work. A year ago, my career looked very different than it does now. It's very weird to think that careers have made shifts that are actually really positive because of this work, but it makes sense. For many of us, this is our protest. When George Floyd was murdered, my child was two weeks old. So I wasn't able to protest physically in the way that um, is important to me um, because of exposure risk to my child. So community engagement, both through pen and through voice is my protest. For many of us, the shifts and the intentionality we've taken with our work around this is our protest. And that gives me hope. I have a community of people that I did not have through this community engaged work, through this form of intentionality within our individual spheres, whether you're a clinician, whether you are a public health expert, whether you are a scientist, um, my community has grown. Um, and, in so, and in so doing my um, impact and reach has grown. And that gives me hope. Um, this, new stage and era that our country is in with much higher levels of accountability, I believe, gives yeah. me hope. Hearing science at the forefront again mm -hmm. um, gives me hope. And these vaccines give me hope. Listen, guys, we've got to remember where we were, you know, a year, a year ago, even eight months ago, with very little, by the way, of treatment and not one vaccine. 
as an infectious disease specialist, my boss was telling me, you, I, you, we asked him, how long do you think our operations are going to change? Because we don't operate in nearly the same way. Everything changed in my department in mm -hmm. response to this vaccine. And he said, be ready for the next two years. Mm -hmm. While I believe that was still true and is still true, I think we're in such a better place of mm -hmm. reverting to some degree of former normalcy because of these vaccines. Mm -hmm. I beseech people to consider and to take these vaccines because they're safe and effective, to not be afraid of all the, this, the new strains. You know, I didn't have, we didn't have time for the purpose of this podcast to get into, you know, my teaching around that. And I'm happy for people to email me or, or get in touch with me if they have questions. But the vaccines we have now are so effective. Uh, you know, our flu vaccine is 50 to 60% each year and look what impact it's made, right? right? Um, on morbidity and mortality in this country in the same way this vaccine and the uptake of this vaccine is critical for us to start to get back to some degree of normalcy. So honestly, the vaccine does give me hope, but um, I really, really, really am appreciative of this platform and for you, how purposeful all of you are in bringing these voices um, out there because the more of this we do, the more I am, I believe that that long-term change we spoke about earlier in this discussion will actually stick. Yeah, well, we appreciate the shout out. We couldn't have done this without you. So round of applause. Yeah, yeah. But it is true. I do think that it's been a challenging year, but I think everything hopefully has catalyzed uh, uh, some changes. And I think people are, if not changing their careers, at least they're popping their head up. Like I've been uncomfortable, right? Even our, our, our white colleagues or yeah. our, um, you know, myself is not, you know, I'm not black, but I pop my head up and say like, this is not right, this is not okay. And then hopefully that, that will, um, you know, we'll see some shifts, not only in academic medicine and healthcare institutions, um, but across the board. So yeah, well, thank you for, uh, you know, sharing your words of wisdom and, and light at the end of the tunnel for this year. Yeah, absolutely, thank you. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and I think that, having that that last bit of hope and really being able to reflect back and think about where we were and it, it definitely felt like when we left campus and left our offices um it felt like we have no idea when we're going to return and how bad yeah. it can be and if you've watched a movie like contagion before you wonder <laughs> if it's going to be martial law ma yeah. mass chaos and <laughs> You just have have no idea. So um, it definitely puts things in perspective to hear that and to hear someone with your expertise to know even against some of these new strains that we're we're in, in a good spot. So we really appreciate you for for coming in and sharing your expertise and also inspiring us and giving us some some hope, some things that'll give us some uh, hopefully some some springs in our step as we step out of bed in the morning to to do this really exhausting work. Thank you. Thanks so much. So thank you all for, for joining us again. And we'll we'll see you next time. Thanks to Dr. Montague for, for joining us today and uh, for our listeners. And join us next time on Sick Individual Sick Populations. Bye, y'all. Thank you. Bye, everybody.